0: Green Bay, February 18th, 1963. Police are called for a welfare check to a home in a rural neighborhood in the southwestern outskirts of the city. Upon arrival, officers do not receive a response at the home, but soon find themselves in a scene of absolute horror. Looking through windows, Officers see multiple bodies lying inside the home. Forcing their way in, police find five members of the Hebert family, including three children, all with gunshots to the head. The ensuing investigation would reveal the story of a sixth family member and become the first documented instance of teenage mass murder in our state's history. Welcome to Badger Bizarre. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer... parts such as skulls, skeletons, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 18, 18. of Badger Bazaar. I am your co-host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other co-host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mick? How come your voice always gets deeper when you... Your other co-host, that other schmuck and, who always uh, fucking shows up at his house I got this I other guy here. sitting next to me. It's Whatever. his house, but still, I wish he'd uh, forget. I need a place to do it. <laughs> anyways happy new year it's good to be loved happy new year to you (laughs) everybody good to have you on board the first edition of badger bazaar in 2023 it's a new year new year we kicked this off just as we planned kicked it off in uh 2022 and here in 2023 we're kicking it up a notch so i hope you all stick around for that we have some paracons that we're going to be part of this year We have some speaking engagements that we're going to be part of this year. Hit us up with what you believe uh, we should be covering, what we should be doing. Search for us on social media, we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, and there'll be some more accounts in the, uh, the the interwebs coming out later this year. So
1: We want to hear your opinions and your thoughts and your reviews and any ways we can improve and uh, subjects that we should cover. Your opinions matter as much as ours do, so please let us know.
0: Packer season is over now, uh, mercifully, so there's nothing yeah. else. What else is there to do, right, then? And curl up, just and, listen to our podcast and listen to uh some creepy stories from Badger Bazaar. <laughs> One thing I want to so so last episode regarding Lori Bembenek, uh, we had talked in the beginning of the first episode of the two-parter about a little experience that I had, my first UFO um, sighting, my first UFO experience, I guess you could say. I'm not sure what it was. Still making to this you day, a believer. It, it's it's made me something, no yeah, doubt about it. You were already something. So we talked about it that uh, in during in the beginning of that episode and that story, not my story, but that story itself, all of these sightings that have happened on that night, December 2nd, has gone global. It's all over the place. It's Like n- the world. News, newspaper accounts in England, uh, all over Europe. It's been on Fox News. Um, it's, it's just, it's hit a nerve that there were so many sightings. It seems to be centered around Wisconsin, not only Wisconsin. It seems to be, seemed to spread throughout the Eastern part of the United States. Yeah. You mentioned North Carolina last time you talked about it. You know, all these kind of weird lights that were seen in the sky on the night of December 2nd. So there's no question that something happened that night. The question is what exactly happened that night? And there's nothing has ever come forward. Nobody has come forward and saying they have an explanation. There's no FAA, uh, a report saying that there were drones in the sky where they shouldn't have been, or anything like that. So we don't know what happens. Just Still, purely speculation. It's being I mean, looked into. That we've gotten requests for interviews ourselves because of the story we told on our podcast. Well, that's not the only reason. Charm and charisma have course well, factors. Well, I was trying to be Obviously. trying to be subtle there. Well,
1: I'll say it. <laughs> it's not bragging if it's a fact.
0: So uh, December second. So go ahead if you have if you don't know what I'm talking about go ahead and take take a listen to episode 16 and 17 uh, re- regarding Lori Bembenek, and you'll understand what we're talking about here. But it's it's certainly blown up. Um, there's more, obviously, to be told about that issue. The, the other thing I want to talk about here, and this, this broke a couple of weeks ago, and we actually knew about this the last time we recorded, but we didn't mention it because I wanted to see if more information was coming out about it. So there is a 30-plus-year a cold case, murder case in Appleton that looks like it's on its way to finally being solved. There was an arrest of a murder that happened in Appleton in 1988. I have an article here from Oxygen.com. This is the Oxygen TV channel. They also have a website and blog. It says, quote, Washington man charged with 1988 rape murder of Wisconsin mother found near train tracks. Betty Rolfe, 60, vanished during a 15-minute walk from her Appleton, Wisconsin home to her place of work. The next day, a police officer found her partially nude body underneath the gravel with a purse strapped around her neck. Ten blocks from her home. So this happened, if you're familiar with Appleton, this happened on West Spencer Street. She lived on West Spencer Street, and she was walking from her house in 1988 to where she worked at Country Air. You know, a lot of you in the area remember Country Air. Recently, it's been Monarch Gardens. That wasn't
1: far from where the Foxes played either, right?
0: All right. No, it's not. It wasn't far from Goodland Field at all. Right. Yeah. So, and she never made it to work, and she never. It's a made minor it home. league
1: baseball team for people who don't know.
0: She never made it to work. She never. Uh, she she never made it home. So she was walking to work in a driving snowstorm, and uh, she was found the next day, partially nude, as the article said, raped and beaten, and after 34, 35 years, it looks like we finally have a perpetrator of that. It says quote. Gene Clarence Meyer, 66, is charged with first degree intentional homicide and first degree sexual assault in connection with the 1988 death of Betty Rolfe, according to a criminal complaint reviewed by Oxygen.com. Outagamie County authorities in Wisconsin say the 60 year old victim disappeared while walking to work and was found raped, beaten, and strangled underneath a bridge in Appleton, about 30 miles southwest of Green Bay. Now, it looks like. They cracked this case with familial DNA.
1: It says in 2019, investigators conducted a search for said familial DNA, which looked for possible relatives of Rolf's killer. According to the criminal complaint, they found two candidates, Gene Meyer, as you mentioned, and his brother, identified only by the initials CM.
0: So this familial DNA, since it was, I think it was first used, at least the first high profile case it was used on to successfully solve was the Golden State Killer, who killed many people he was a former police officer himself and and, uh, um, now it's it's being used obviously in cold cases around the country and us in appleton and this family now can rest a little easier knowing that this murder is going to be solved and there's a an article i hear from the post-crescent in appleton in 1989 and this is from february of 1989 which is three months after she was murdered and it says quote three months have come and gone since snowy november morning on which 60 year old betty rolfe was slain and her partially clothed body was left behind the railroad underpass on Spencer Street. Investigators interviewed Wednesday said they are not much closer to understanding the murder now than they were 12 weeks ago. Quote, we've had this happen before, said Outagamie County Sheriff Tom Drutson. You have a body, and you still have to fill in the blank spots. And it just isn't easy.
1: The investigation was conducted with the assistance of the Milwaukee-based cold case team, with the Pierce County Sheriff's Office and local FBI agencies assisting in Meyer's arrest. Uh, if convicted, as it sounds like he will be, Meyer faces a possible sentence of life, plus 20 years in
0: prison. Yeah, when you have DNA pinpointing you, you're pretty much dead in the water. Right, these days it's under this. control. You know, and this, this is the kind of stuff that kind of hits home. I drive by, I drive over that exact spot every day. Every day on West Spencer Street, I drive by where her body was found. It's creepy. I drive. Well, so Did I To rem- get to work or just to relive the experience? No. No. Oh, I'm sorry. It, just part of my daily activity. Oh, I, miss, I right. misunderstood. Okay. Right. So, you know, I remember when this happened, but I mean, I was 12, 13 years old. You do when, remember. When these things happen in your hometown, these things don't happen in Appleton very often. You know?
1: I've, I've killed those brain cells then or something because I don't know. Okay. you got a much better but memory. But, I,
0: I, you know, I didn't, rem- I didn't know the specifics of it. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize it was on Spencer Street. But it rang a bell you know? when of you course. heard these names? Yes. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, you know, now I know I drive by this spot every day. I drive by where Country Air, which became Monarch Gardens, is. It's gone now. The building's not even right. there anymore. Right. But I drive by those spots every day. I drive by our house every day. You know, and and now I know this. And and so now every time I drive by, I'm going to be thinking of that. This isn't often that this stuff happens this close to home. We talk about it a lot.
1: Well, especially such a deranged situation. I mean— uh, did the two even know each other and, and no. for what reason and just to leave her out in the daylight like that it was just, and they, they don't even know his motive it's just there's so much up in the air it's it's good that they got the guy it sounds like he may have been living a normal life afterwards but it's so odd that there's so many things up in the air that we still don't know about 30 years later
0: she was walking to work at 10 in, blocks from her house 10 blocks from her house she's walking down spencer street going to work and he likely grabs her or or uh you know coerces her somehow into the car likely sexually assaults her rapes her beats her to death and leaves her chokes her with her own purse strap and, and leaves her on the side of the road just leaves her there so you know I, I like when we hear about this you know any any kind of this this new technology that comes out with dna dna like i said is that's it you you, you get caught with dna it's over for you and they keep finding new ways to use it right And there's a lot of scared perpetrators out there right now, and there should be
1: relieved family members, et cetera. No question, not happy, but they this offers closure, you know, if that's possible in certain situations. But for sure, that at least they finally know that the person who did it was apprehended and punished and taken care of,
0: especially when you know that her her husband, their father, was a suspect, you know, just because he's the husband, you know, that's that's always. You know, the, the people closest after. to are, are are always the, the suspects. And he way. must
1: have been so tired of being accused. Sure.
0: Of- so, you know, prayers to the Rolfe family of Appleton. And, uh, you know, as Mickey said, hopefully they can, uh, they can rest a little easier knowing that uh, this piece of shit is off the street. So we're going to head back in time a little bit today.
1: There's a Huey Lewis song called Back in Time. Should I start singing?
0: We're going back to Tuesday morning, February 19th, 1963. Right, right in the middle of the, uh, the Lombardi years in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Right, Kennedy's president. So in the early morning hours of Tuesday, February 19th, 1963 in Green Bay, Darrell Abisher is pulling out of his driveway, and he's heading to work. He works at Austin Straubel Airport. And he leaves pretty early. We're talking 5 o'clock in the morning, right? So it's still, it's dark, 5 o'clock in the morning. And he lives fairly close to Austin Straubel. You know, that he lived on Hazelwood Lane, which is southwest side of the city. Not a long drive, obviously, to the airport. And as he's heading to the airport, he passes uh, the home home, of a co worker and friend of his who lives on the same street, the home of Jack Hebert.
1: Passes that house every day on the way to work. Every single day. 5 a.m., he gets up to go.
0: So, on this particular day, Tuesday morning, February 19th, as he's going to work, he notices that every light in the house is on at the Hebert residence, which he, you know, he, he notices it. So, it's a little bit unusual. You know, but at the same time, Jack is coming to work. He works with Jack at the airport. He knows Jack's coming into work. So he normally sees lights on in the house, but this looks like every light is on in the house and he doesn't see anything going on. There's no cars backing out. He doesn't see any activity going on. You know, so it, it was a little bit unusual for him to take notice of it. But at the same time, again, Jack's coming to work. There's four school-aged children in that house. Something might've been going on. For those lights to be on, so he, again he notices it, doesn't make a huge deal of it right away. So Darrell Abisher goes to work, right, and and not too long later he notices that Jack Hebard is not coming in yet. And he sees this is now, th- now this is a bit unusual because he drove by his house and he saw all the lights on, and here Jack's not coming into work.
1: Assumed he was getting ready and normal day, and all of a sudden he's still not here yet.
0: He hasn't called in sick to work. So now he's thinking, you know, something might be up. So he calls his wife. And he asks his wife to look over and see if she can see that the lights are on at the Hebert's house yet because they...
1: Well, actually, first he called Jack.
0: That, right, he called he called Jack's house, right? And, and he got no answer. Now, at this time, Hazelwood Lane is, is a pretty rural area yet. You know, the houses were sporadic between open lots. Now, today, this street... Is, is your typical suburban residential street, house after house after house. In 1963, it was much more sporadic than that. So, you know, you can see houses pretty long ways from your window. Right. So he calls his wife and he says, can you still see lights on in the Hebert house? And she said, yes, all the lights are on. There's no activity it doesn't look like. So now he's, he's getting a little bit unnerved. Because it looks like all the all the lights were on from the night before yet, and there doesn't seem to be any activity, and Jack is not showing up to work. So he does what I don't think anybody would do today. Maybe I'm wrong, but he calls the police.
1: People might be a little afraid to stick
0: their nose in these days. Right. I think I think people today, they're going to be like, that's not my business. I'm not going right. to worry about it. And they're going to get distracted right yeah. away. Right. Right. So not only does he, he— And he's not being a busybody. He's concerned about his uh, friend. Of, of course. And, and what's happened. And the other thing, you know, I was thinking about this— like if, if if this would be me and I'm and I'm calling my wife and saying, you know, can you see I would say, Hey, can you run over to Jack's house right. and, and tell him to get his ass into work? Well, we know, you know these people.
1: Right. I mean, so yeah, just run over there quick if it's that close and just say, Hey, is there anything you know they could have figured out sooner?
0: But they ha- he had the wherewithal to think, you know what, something bad might be going on over there. Right. So I'm not gonna send my wife over there. So good on him for that. Right. So yeah, he c-
1: Right. I didn't even think of that when you were saying that. Right. But-
0: so he calls the police and he's like, Hey, my buddy's not into work. I just passed his house a little bit ago. All the lights are on. Um, this is unusual. Can you go do a welfare check? So about 7 o'clock that morning, Tuesday morning again, February 19th, 1963, officers arrive at the home of Jack Hebert on Hazelwood Lane. So Dale Herford and Robert Bashy arrive on the scene. And they knock on the door. There's no answer. They see the lights on. It's light out by now, 7 o'clock, right? but they see all the lights on in the house and they see that there's a car in the driveway and there's a car in the in the garage and then
1: soon after a, a officer named Fred Matthews showed up too evidently
0: so there's no button, there's there's no answer at the door so they start scanning the yard and they go around the house and they start looking in the windows and that's when they see what they later testified to was five bodies right away they could see five bodies dead lying dead on the in, in the home on the floor obvious trauma they see blood under the bodies right so now they don't know and this is only
1: about six forty-five now so not long not long after the neighbor made the call
0: so they they don't know if there's somebody still in the house that uh, first of all that might need help or a perpetrator still in the house but these cops do and this is why cops are a different breed this is why cops are a different breed to me the first thing they do is when they see this is they kick in the back door right
1: they don't flee. They go, we have to go right there.
0: Yeah. They kick the back door in. Again, right. they don't know if there's a shotgun pointed, right. you know, with a target on them when they go in that door. They are
1: trained to do this a little bit in our defense, if we look like cowards. But, yeah, they're, I mean, it's still, they know what's at risk, whether they've been trained or not as they kick down the door.
0: So they see these bodies, they kick down the door, and they enter. And they do not encounter an assailant, but they did find the body. Of Jack Hebert, along with the bodies of his family, all shot by multiple twenty two caliber weapons.
1: The TV in the kitchen was still on, the table was set, and food in the pans of the stove was burned
0: black and stuck to the pans. The sto- I think the stove, the gas in the stove was still on or something. Right. And, and, and the food was burnt and stuck <laughs> yeah. to it. Yeah. So now inside the home was, as we said, Jack Hebert, 37, shot in the forehead as he lay on the couch in the living room. His wife, Joyce, 35, shot dead in the kitchen. Joyce's son, John, 15 years old, this would be Jack's stepson, shot multiple times lying at the kitchen door. And Joyce's twin 11-year-old daughters, Janice and Judy, both found in the kitchen with gunshots to the head, 11, 11 years old. So altogether, five members of the family were murdered in this home. But there was a sixth member of the family that was not there. Jack's 16-year-old son from a previous marriage, Harry. So they put an APB out for Harry, right? They don't know yet, right, when they get in the home and they see what they see. Is Harry, once they find out there's somebody missing, is Harry a victim here? Has Harry been abducted? Or is Harry possibly the killer? So they put an APB out for Harry all law enforcement agencies across the state. But they find out rather quickly that Harry is very likely the main suspect here. So he goes from unknown possible victim himself to definite main suspect. And we'll get into why a little later. And a
1: lot more details of the scene itself.
0: But at any event, Harry is now on the run, right? They don't know where he is. And he just killed his father, his stepmother, and step-siblings. So what happened in this house on Hazelwood Lane in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1963 that led this 16-year-old boy apparently to to wipe out his entire family? What do we know about this family? What do we know about Harry? Well, Harry, born in 1946, two parents, Jack and Blanche Hebert. In Huntington, Indiana. Huntington, Indiana. Now, they were married, Black, uh, Jack and Blanche were married December of 1945 in Winona, Minnesota. But when Harry was barely a year old, it was 15 months, I think he was, uh, they're living in La Crosse County by this time. Uh, March of 1948, Blanche files for divorce. She files for divorce on the grounds of uh, cruel and inhumane treatment, alleging that Jack, quote, frequented bars and taverns where he was seen in the company of other women while neglecting to support her or their child, unquote. She said that Jack refused to work steadily, choosing instead to uh, obtain money from his mother, which he would then spend on liquor and entertaining friends, and that he, quote, absented from their home for long periods of time, staying away for up to two weeks at a time when Harry was only a few weeks old, unquote. So, and actually just two weeks before filing for divorce, Hebert was in jail in Macross for lewd and lascivious conduct with a woman At a motel.
1: A 50-year-old woman.
0: Right. So Jack's got some issues here, right? Deadbeat. He he was actually out on parole for stealing cars when they were married. So, I mean, Jack's got a lot of baggage with him.
1: And I think you basically, he assaulted a woman in 1950 for which he was actually
0: imprisoned. Right. So, you know, Blanche files for divorce and custody obviously goes to the mother, as it does uh, many times. Jack actually... Especially
1: with a... Person like that, it's right?
0: The father. Uh, and and Jack leaves Lacrosse County, and he spends his time in and out of jail, as Mickey says. He gets convicted of attacking a woman whom he knocked down and then kicked, uh, and he was sentenced to five years in prison for this. He winds up doing two years. He gets married and divorced for a second time. Now Blanche is eventually married as well. So you know this is kind of the typical American divorce story, right? Custody goes to the mom, the dad. A lot of times, kind of a deadbeat. Maybe he'll stay involved. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just fades away. But I guess to Jack's credit, he didn't fade away. He stayed involved with Harry's life. He would take Harry and they would have visits and stuff. And in March of 1955, so now we're, you know, Harry's about nine years old, eight years old. While Jack is is married to his second wife and living in Wisconsin Rapids, uh, he actually petitions the court to have custody of Harry transferred to him.
1: His mother treated him with disdain and a sense of callous regard. She got she got remarried, as Scott mentioned. He last he was there for three years. The next three years were nightmarish, according to what Harry would end up telling psychiatrists. His stepfather often ridiculed him and made him feel unwanted. And these feelings must have extended from what his mother felt. He was neglected and physically abused for aneurysis, which is bedwetting. And then, as Scott's alluding to, once he turned eight, his mother and father stepfather, sorry, took steps to place him in an orphanage. In fact. They just wanted to be rid of him, and that's when Jack stepped in and brought him to live with him and his second wife in Wisconsin Rapids. She didn't care for him much in the first place, and that's his mother. And as as you know, Jack wasn't the most loving of people as it is, but at least he took him under his wing at that point.
0: Uh, and now Harry, Harry was his nickname was Butch, and it was already this when he was a child, so they called him Butch. So this is when he's already staying with Jack and Jack's second wife. So the letter that he writes to the court says the following. It says, quote, Butch is content, very much at home and fond of his new friends in school already. He has remarked that he'd like to stay with us for good and just visit his mother once in a while. So according to Jack, Harry is saying that he wants to live with Jack. Jack goes on to say, He says that his stepdad was often mean to him and he was hungry often. I spent two hours each night the first two nights scrubbing him. Hands, knees, and feet were black and practically grown in with caked dirt. Mrs. Rusk, the investigator here, saw part of this and can vouch for it.
1: Just from the condition of his shoes or his feet like that, he he arrived at Jack's house malnourished, dirty, and still suffering from consistent bedwetting. So he was treated like a a mutt that the family didn't want.
0: Now, Mrs. Rusk, who is kind of the social worker that was working for him that he said could, could vouch for them, she actually wrote to the court herself. And she says, quote, Harry was certainly a sad looking child. His clothes were dirty and his body was dirty. His hands, wrists, knees, and legs had dirt literally ground into them. It was not recent dirt, but dirt that had been there for quite some time.
1: I can't even figure out how it gets ground into the skin. Like, I'm having a hard time imagining how you get to be that dirty.
0: It wasn't by choice. So it was massive neglect going on here with Harry in his, you know, formative of years from, what, two when Jack left when they were divorced to almost nine years old now where he was neglected, seems like he was beaten um, and ridiculed by his stepfather. So again, Jack petitions the court for for custody and the court, the interesting thing here is the court didn't even have to make the decision. Blanche voluntarily gave up custody herself.
1: Which goes to show up. (laughs) Her disdain basically, towards yeah, the kid.
0: She just basically says, yeah, go ahead, don't take him. I want him take him, yeah. This is his mother. This is Harry's mother saying, take the kid.
1: And that's why there wasn't a whole lot of information about her because she left his life real early, by choice.
0: And as Mickey said, they'd actually been looking into placing him in an orphanage, so they don't even call his biological father and say, right? do you want your son? They're just, looking to put him in an orphanage. Just dump him somewhere. So Harry goes and he lives with Jack
1: because his second marriage also failed. Right. Jacks did
0: now at that same year in 1955 that his his second marriage fails and we don't there's not a lot of information about why. So w- did she? I n- think we can guess. Well, maybe did she not? Did she not want Harry? And Jack said, "I'm going to take him anyways. That's my sure, son." Sure. Did they get Harry? And it was Harry that she had an issue with, and she couldn't live with him. Or was he being or the was same it kind Jack? of husband right. he
1: was already? yeah.
0: We don't, we don't know.
1: His track record would say it was more about Jack, but it's all speculation.
0: So now, sometime after this, he's divorced. He's married and divorced twice. Um, he meets and eventually marries Joyce Rudell, a widow whose husband passed away at the age of 33 in 1956 from an illness. And he is the father of John and the twin daughters. John
1: kept her name, her maiden name, the daughters would take the Hebird name after they were married.
0: Now, they're living in Green Bay. And, and you know what? Jack seems, even with his past and the baggage that he has, he seems to be trying to put a life together here, right? They live in Green Bay. They bought a house. He's got a job, a steady job. He's working at the airport. Um, and, you know, despite all his troubles, as we said, he lived a fairly interesting life when you look through all the garbage and the baggage. So Jack himself is born in Santa Monica, California. In the 1920s. He's raised three blocks from a movie studio stunt lot. So he's around this stuff when he's a kid. Right? Stunt driving. Stunt men. So as a teenager, he starts working for this stunt lot. And he doesn't want his parents to know. This is dangerous stuff. Right? The studio probably didn't know how old he was. So he starts driving for this this stunt lot.
1: He didn't want his mom to know any of it. So he right. gave himself a nickname. So he changes
0: his name. Or actually, he does it under a stage name. Of Lucky O'Hara. Lucky O'Hara. <laughs> he does this so his, his parents don't find out. Again, they don't want their 16, 17-year-old kid, you know, driving cars that are on fire and driving cars on two wheels. Specifically, and his
1: mother, he figured she would stop him from doing it altogether.
0: So. Now, Jack was very, suc- he was very good at it. Right? He was very successful at it. He actually would go on to drive cars and motorcycles for Joey Chitwood's thrill show. Now, to give you some perspective here, Joey Chitwood is pretty much the godfather of stuntmen, right? He, so he he starts the Joey Chitwood Thrill Show in the 1940s, and later it's, it becomes part of ABC's Wide World of Sports. The stuntmen driving for him are called Hell Drivers. They're appearing in huge Hollywood movies, doing stunts, um, and they're going on tour around the country for 50 years. Joey Chitwood's Thrill Show was touring around the country doing these you know, death-defying automobile stunts. And to give you an uh, an idea of the Chitwood name, Joey Chitwood's grandson, Joey Chitwood III, went on to become the president of the International Speedway Corporation, Daytona International Speedway, and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. (laughs) That's the trifecta. So this
1: is, I mean, this is the kind of, like, evil Knievel at that level.
0: And this is funny you say that, because the Joey Chitwood Thrill Show and the drivers that worked for him, including Jack Ebert, was credited by none other than Evil Knievel.
1: Who everybody knows when right. it comes to stunts and
0: daredevils. As being his inspiration for, for becoming a daredevil. So these are the people that, that Jack Hebert was working with. He In his realm, he was top of the line.
1: Well, and, and to go further, Abisher that we mentioned before, they both worked at the airport together, Austin Straubel Airport. It turns out that they were actually doing stunt flying tricks also. Jack would work with with Abishur as far as just performing those kinds of tricks too. So uh, he loved he loved daredeviling, and he loved stunts and whether it was on the ground or in the air. So th- this guy had some experience with all
0: that. So obviously he's very good at what he does. He's very successful at what he does. Now I have no idea how somebody like this who's touring the nation doing these stunt shows winds up in you know Winona, Minnesota and Lacrosse and Green Bay. I mean, I can assume, right? I mean Wisconsin Rapids. Yeah, I mean he, he he kind of had a tendency to run from things. Yeah. <laughs> right. That might be, was, those might be some good places to run to to hide. If he did some bad stunts with right. his wives, too. So, but in, in any event, he's in Green Bay now and he's working at the airport for North Central Airlines as a station agent. He's their main station agent, right? He runs North Central Airlines at Austin Straubel Airport and he starts his own thrill show. He's retired now from, from Joey Chitwood, so he starts his own thrill show called Lucky O'Hara's Devil Drivers. Now, remember the Joey Chitwood's Drivers was called the Hell Drivers. He names these the Devil Drivers. And this, was, this is known as kind of like a side job that he had, right? Because he worked at the airport and doing this thrill show. Lucky O'Hara's thrill show was a side job. Well, in the summer of 1963, you know, he was murdered in February of 1963. Later that year, in the summer of 63, he had 78 shows booked on the East Coast, and that doesn't include all the shows that they were going to have in the Midwest, which they were still scheduling. This was a big deal. This was a big, this was a big deal. You know, he's doing county fairs, state fairs, and this type, these types of things all over the country. Now, North Central Airlines, because he worked for North Central Airlines, you know, airlines have their own magazine that they always put in their airplanes.
1: He was a senior agent. Is technically what his title was, which right. means he's fairly high up.
0: No, he they, they ran this in a feature article in a magazine that was going to be run later in 1963, leading up to the massive summer he was going to have on the East, uh, on the East Coast. Now, this Lucky O'Hara thrill show. It says, "Quote the one and a half hour show includes car rolling, jumping, and precision driving." motorcyclists and auto drivers crashing through flaming bales of hay a woman performs in a high trapeze attached to a speeding car as if that wasn't enough
1: his signature
0: Spe- stunt. spectators at some shows get a real blast when lucky o'hara i see what you did there executes his specialty protected by a steel plate and wearing a special helmet earplugs and a rubber earmuff
1: sounds like he needed a
0: helmet all right he crawls into a large wooden box and dynamites it into kindling the human bomb the human bomb and he has a quote he says yeah quote usually the blast knocks the wind out of me and maybe it'll burn my sweatshirt it's not too bad when you get used to it but it takes a lot of know-how unquote
1: and they actually i read the the term coffin is a little more morbid you called it a box which still paints a picture it was essentially a coffin. It was a
0: coffin, right? It was shaped like a coffin.
1: I mean, it's almost like, okay, if I die, I'm already in the box I'm going to be in.
0: And it says, it, it, so, quote, Hebert has done the stunt about 200 times a year. 11 men have tried the bomb stunt. Only three are still alive to tell about it. So he, he, the they, danger was real. Right, yeah.
1: but he always escaped uninjured for the most part.
0: It's like it's some Harry Houdini shit. Right. So now, even after, even after his death, His untimely, obviously, death in 1963. Um, His drivers kept this going, the Lucky O'Hara Thrill Show. His drivers and his buddies, one of which was Darrell Abisher. they kept this going, and this was still being used in this area, the Lucky O'Hara name, as recently as 2013. I didn't know that. As the Lucky O'Hara Demolition Derby. It was still 50 years after his death. Have you heard of it? It was still.
1: You've heard of everything else and remember for some reason, steel trap. I couldn't have told you anything about that. I didn't know it existed.
0: No, I don't. I don't know the name Lucky O'Hara, but but it, I don't get into
1: that world either. I mean, I bet you it's pretty well, famous is, around. This here. is this
0: is the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday Right, stuff. Right, right, yeah. So I mean, so, I mean is,
1: I'm sure there's a lot of people real familiar with it. Right. Since it was only nine years ago that it ended.
0: Well, if it ended, I don't know. I just don't. I don't see it anymore oh, around right. here. Yeah. I haven't seen anything in print around that was dated after 2013. So, but you know, this guy had some influence, right? This wasn't just a guy that was snuffed out lying on his couch by his kid
1: he wasn't some deadbeat otherwise when it comes to his
0: lifestyle so you know but it it, again it seems like his life was starting to mature a little bit starting to get on the right track a little bit you know he was now in his mid-30s he kind of took in his son from a shitty situation he took on another family
1: that doesn't mean he wasn't abusive but he wasn't doing the things his first wife accused him of as far as staying out all night and coming home drunk and all that stuff not as much anyway
0: well is she how credible is she Right, right, just because she said that doesn't necessarily mean it happened. So now he marries Joyce, right, and they they have an an intermingled family. We have Joyce and her three kids.
1: The Brady
0: Bunch. we have Jack and Harry moving into a house in Green Bay. Now, what about Harry, right? He's still missing since the murders, right? He takes off. We're not sure where he is. There's a lot of conflicting reports about exactly who Harry was. What we know, he was a student at Green Bay West High School. He was a junior. He had junior standing, but it seems like he meshed better with the sophomores in terms of kids that he would get along with, so maybe that shows a little immaturity there. I don't know. He didn't appear
1: to have very severe emotional problems during his first two years there.
0: No, you know, you you, you do the research, and they talk a lot up to his former teachers, and the word that you hear over and over again is, quote, unremarkable. Right. He was quiet. He kept to himself. He was a bit aloof. He was a C average student, you know, and they say that he didn't imply himself real well in school, meaning he just he did what he could to get by. He
1: did participate in junior varsity football for a bit, but it does say he was an active member of the track team, including running events and pole vaulting.
0: Right. So you get outside the classroom here and it looks like he's a different kid. Right. You know, it seems like inside the classroom he's quiet. He doesn't like doing the work. He doesn't apply himself, as the teacher said.
1: Freshman year, he earned a D average in algebra, social sciences, and industrial arts. Sophomore year, he earned a D average in geometry, but B averages in biology and drafting. And then junior year, he kind of went back down and earned four Ds and one C in first quarter report card.
0: So, not a great intellectual student.
1: Didn't try real hard.
0: Didn't Didn't try hard, but you get him out of the classroom, like Mickey said. He played JV football. He was part of the varsity track team. He was in choir. He was super involved in his church, and he organized neighborhood football teams.
1: Especially outside of school, he was right. very active. So it
0: doesn't seem because this is a rural community. Still, it didn't seem like there was a lot of parks in the area like we have. You know, there's parks in every every community. Right. It didn't have that then. So they'd made their own. They made their. You know, they would look to Harry, the neighborhood kids, to make, and he would carve out football fields.
1: Right. So the school activities he was part of. But it was the non-school sporting events and that he was kind of a leader. He had a knack and a passion for sports. He even, as Scott mentioned, laid out regulation-sized ball fields for kids to use. He could engage in long bouts of conversations about sports, as you said. Otherwise, seemed extremely shy and disliked being with others, yet this brought out another
0: side of him. He he designed golf courses. There were no golf courses for these kids to play on. He designed golf courses and he would carve out holes and they would make homemade golf clubs for the, for the neighborhood kids. And they would do this with him. They made their own, their uh, dirt stunt track with their bikes. Practice
1: pole vaulting. They ended up Stealing a pole right. from school at <laughs> some point. And,
0: so, I mean, John joined in, the, you know, his his stepbrother, who was a year younger, 15. He joined in in all this. It doesn't seem like they got real, along real well. But all this is normal stuff, right?
1: Along with a self-proclaimed best friend of John named Dennis Carmen, who has a lot of things to say later on. Yeah, he well, saying his name. So the
0: house itself had a big recreation room in the basement with a pool table. And this is where all the neighborhood kids would kind of come... And and congregate, probably in the wintertime and what is you couldn't really be outside, they'd be they'd be at the Hebert house with Harry and John playing pool in the backyard.
1: It sounds like he idolized his dad no matter how he was treated by him. To to that end, the the race bikes that you mentioned, they actually had a self made hell drive stunt track that they invented themselves, mm-hmm. they created themselves. So even that passed down from his dad, even that was something that he shared with his friends and took part
0: in. So, again, his teachers call him aloof. They say he didn't apply himself in the class. He was quiet. He was withdrawn. But the Green Bay Press-Gazette calls the Hebert home a place of fun and frolic. This is after the murders. Yeah. Right? So, again, this is two different sides of a person here. Is one right and one wrong? Or is this, uh, you know, was it sports that really brought his personality out? This is an enigma to me. Throughout the research, I would read
1: mostly the negative things which will lead up to a child doing this, you know killing his family, but there there were throughout the, the research you you read testimonies of people basically misjudging the situation and saying, "Oh, everything seemed fine
0: and again we don't we don't know what to believe because other than one person that so there's a book on this called Harry a Study of teenage mass murders and it's by it's by a guy named Stephen Daniels, who's the son. Of the lead investigator of this case. So, he, you know he, know, he knows, you would think, what he's talking about. And he's
1: a detective himself, correct?
0: He's not a, he's not a detective. Yeah. He's, a, he's a parole officer. Oh,
1: right. Yeah. But he's in that field.
0: So when you start looking at the dynamic of the family, you know, there's, there, there's this kind of quiet, sad Harry in, in the classroom who doesn't, who's not very good. And there's this kind of uh, very creative and friendly Harry who all the neighborhood kids want to be friends with. When it comes to sports, Harry, you know, but again, you start looking in the dynamic of the family, the narrative changes a little bit.
1: Neighbors talk about this household not being not a happy home, quote unquote. Those who socialized with the family said that Joyce often would have bruises on her face. One story mentions during a group gathering, Jack twisted Joyce's arm behind her back so hard that there was obvious grimace on her face. And yet he had a look on his face that dared anyone to intervene. So Jack had this history and it didn't just affect his wife.
0: And Stephen Daniels writes what is the only comprehensive study about this case that there is. Again, the son of the lead homicide detective. And he talks a lot about these rumors about the family dynamic. As neighbors said, as Mickey alluded to, the house was, quote, a not, not a happy home, unquote. And Joyce would often have bruises. And as Mickey said, there was one time where Jack twisted her arm uh, behind her back in plain view of others where she was she was grimacing. And there's there's another time where one year during the holidays, Joyce bought a new dress for New Year's, and she made a comment to one of her friends saying this would likely be the last dress she ever bought. Well, what does that mean? Is she alluding to, well, hey, my husband might kill me? Or she is saying, Jesus, I have a, over a closet full of dresses. I don't know what... When, when you I know, read that, I had no it's idea. It's presented as, it's presented in my opinion as alluding to She's thinking something bad is about to happen.
1: Which goes to show that everyday life, people outside the building, the house, didn't know what was going on. But I read that, and it was in such a weird context that I, I thought about all the options, and nothing really made perfect sense. So it, like you said, it's, it's like she had a premonition or something.
0: After the murders, a co-worker of Jack said he thought that he was the shooter, and another said that, quote, that house should have been burned the night of the murders, unquote. There were numerous accounts of Jack being... An intimidating personality and neighbor suggested that harry was quote abused like hell but no specifics are offered this is the problem i have with this is in this book other than one friend of theirs whose name is dennis carmen who's quoted in the book and he doesn't have any specific instances of abuse that he talks about all these other people that talk about this abuse that happened in this house are neighbors co-workers a neighbor.
1: And to your point, even with the stunt show, there, there's conflicting stories where he basically Jack would force him to rebuild each coffin after each act, and and it was said that he hated the show so much that he never obtained his driver's license or drove any kind of car at any point in his life. At that point, it would have been right around the age. but He's 16. Right, at that point. But he never did later on, but he was also in prison. So it's a little tough to, right. uh, to uh, obtain those things. But conversely... One childhood friend, this Dennis Carman, who was a self-proclaimed best friend of John, would later say that he thought Harry had no such problem. He remembered helping Harry rebuild these flimsy fake bottom coffins and that Harry enjoyed it. And and again, they created these these stunt tracks with their racing bikes, which were a, a tribute to their dad. So how much did he really hate it if he's doing that? you think you would want nothing to do with it.
0: And there's a there's a cousin who would come and stay with the Hebers in the summertime. So she was months at a time. Like she'd stay from like June through August with the family and said she never saw any abuse at all. She didn't know any any of this was going on. Is, uh, uh,
1: her name was Jean Crooks. Remembers there never being any abuse that she noticed. And the same neighbor who recalled Harry's fondness of his stepsisters, he said he never heard any fights in the house except possibly between Harry and John because they didn't necessarily get along because I believe Harry had some jealousy towards John Mm -hmm. because John was good-looking and popular and all that stuff. But from what I've read, it it seems like there's evidence of the abuse. But again, there'd be nobody there to talk about it except for Harry. Nobody inside the walls to see it, including his biological mother, who would still have been alive but wanted nothing to do with him.
0: Now, it also says that the post-murder investigation found indications that Joyce was planning to leave the marriage and that she had told, quote-unquote, people— Although there's no quotes from any people confirming this. It says that she told people that she planned on taking her kids and moving out. And a week before the murder, she had apparently visited her family in Wausau. Again, insinuating that she's talking to her family saying, I'm getting the kids out of there and we're coming here. We'll get later into that. We'll talk more about that and why I don't believe that either.
1: I read that it also was said that Jack got violent with the boys, including his stepsons Harry in particular. As I already mentioned, Harry adored Jack, but himself said was often rejected and refused abruptly by him. Whatever that means, that doesn't necessarily mean abuse, as you're alluding to. According to that Dennis Carman kid, there was once a school bully showed up at their home to confront Harry. Well, it turns out that Jack was by Harry's side as they went outside, and and they ensued a beating. Harry's face came out untouched, but hands were bloodied. And Carmen himself said, quote, My thought at seeing this was this is not good. Jack has condoned an a fist fight in which the other kid took a beating, unquote. And that's from this Dennis Carmen kid who spent a lot of time in their home. But he didn't see anything. Right. And and it certainly wasn't abuse towards Harry, as you're saying. So
0: I, I, now now Harry Harry was involved in some deviancy here. He burglarized houses, he shoplifted, he stole things. The police were called to that house several times. Because of things that Harry did, the police were never called to that house about any call that Joyce made or any call that anybody else made saying that Jack was abusive to anybody. There's all these vague comments from quote unquote neighbors saying that Jack was abusive, and then you have more comments from from closer people saying that there was no abuse going him. on.
1: There was even it said that there was once once Harry broke his arm, and and those two parents refused to take him to the ER until long after it happened.
0: What? What is that? That A couple hours? Right. That
1: sounds like total speculation, which is why I took note of it because it's just so
0: bogus sounding. My seven, my well, he was three when this, three or four when this happened. He jumped off the stairs and he hurt his foot, and he's like, "Oh, my foot hurts." And we brought him to the doctor the next day, and he broke his foot. Right. Is that a long time? Is that abuse? Well,
1: you just didn't know, right? I mean, I. I think you're a poor father for that
0: reason, but I mean. (laughs) Things like this happen. Apparently your sons love
1: you. I've been around them a few times, and they seem to love you quite a bit and not be afraid of you, so I guess you didn't push them. If not, nothing, else. I wasn't
0: even home when oh. it happened, to tell you the truth. Oh. I was well, then you couldn't <laughs> have pushed
1: him. Nice alibi. <laughs> I was not home. Good alibi. Carmen, this Dennis Carmen, whose name I keep referring to, he speculated on two other bizarre and worrisome behaviors. And again, it's speculation. But on one occasion, John showed Carmen where one of the two family dogs, Curly and Pup, one had been shot in the side but survived. This was Pup, in essence, it was John's dog. Carmen figured that Harry shot him since, quote, there was no one else around would shoot a totally harmless and small dog. But it also said that soon after the killings, Carmen walked through the empty lot. In this in this area where they played the pickup games of football and baseball, he came upon a bushel basket of human feces, again, believed to be Harry's, and he would later say, quote, there had to be something going on in that house in which he chose or was forced to do his business outside. I find it hard to imagine that he would have walked all the way to the spot to use the bushel basket, unquote. Again, how does he know that that's even Harry's...
0: He's no idea, right?
1: And he's just speculating all this it's stuff.
0: That whole book is him speculating stuff. Yes, he knew John and Harry, but all of his, what he's saying is, well, I think this happened. I think Harry was this. It's never. There's nothing concrete that Dennis Carman says. He's got
1: no actual evidence, just speculation.
0: You know, there's no specific names to these. It's neighbors, coworkers. Right. Nobody's putting a name to this, and I don't know. You know, to be fair to Daniels, I don't know if he's getting this from police reports, if these are redacted names in, in police reports, or if he's doing these interviews uh, today. He doesn't really say in the book where he's getting this information from, where it just says neighbors and co-workers.
1: He was also having other issues. He stole some cigarettes from a local gas station. He wasn't arrested for this, but he was teased by his stepbrother and stepsisters after the police had come to the house to talk to him about it. And finally, one more incident was that he broke into several houses, as, you, as Scott had mentioned, in the in the area and took money and other small items. Harry himself later said for this he got a good beating from Jack. He even stole a coin collection of previously mentioned friends, Dennis Carmen. After police were called, Harry returned the collection and both boys continued on as if nothing happened, which kind of does lead to your whole cynicism on the whole Abuse and all that stuff. And one more story speaks of Harry and Dennis walking five miles to Green Bay West to steal that pole that I mentioned for their pole vaulting exploits at home, which seems like a really petty theft in, in the grand scheme of things. These are just stories that are either speculation or that neighbors mentioned or that the friends have mentioned about, but even these are not fatal crimes. They're not the worst things in the world that a kid could do. So I understand your skepticism, but I believe that something had to have happened to this kid to make him do these horrible things.
0: Yeah, he's he's uh, he's acting out, you know. But this kid has major abandonment issues, and he, he he was abused as a toddler. That is without question. And it was well
1: known that he felt left out of the family circle and had bad feelings towards this family. But a he's lot of that could be clearly, his own mind.
0: Clearly got a lot of anger. Clearly right. got a lot of rage, rage towards the world. Not necessarily to do Jack, or maybe. To Jack, because he left. He, he divorced his birth mother. You know, Harry's messed up. I'm not I'm not absolving Harry of anything here. And right. we'll get into this later on. Harry's got, he's massively antisocial, this is clear.
1: Right, but a lot of that, I mean, it, it could be genetic or it could have been environmental. And I believe some of it might have been both. I don't believe he just was this way, though. Some things had to have happened, and I don't just believe it was just the stepfather.
0: So anyways, due, due to this, you know, this his grades are going down in school. He's, he's burglarizing houses. He's getting caught shoplifting.
1: Chronic masturbation, hoarding hiding undergarments in various locations. He's doing a lot of devious, shady, he's doing kind weird of gross stuff. Things. He's
0: 16. He's doing weird stuff. This is
1: beyond the gross that we would do as 16-year-olds, though.
0: And they also found a note in his, in his, in his pants or something, not the one that we'll talk about later, but they found a note saying that kind of indicated that he's thinking about running away. So because of these things, you know, they see his grade suffering. They see him doing weird stuff. They see a note saying that he's going to run away. They take him to get help. They take him to a psychiatrist. Right? What? What else would a good parent do? You're not gonna. You. It wouldn't. Not like his mom, who would have said, "Who cares?" And just neglect it, not pay attention to it. So they take Harry to the psychiatrist after they found the note saying that he's going to run away from home. February
1: sixth, nineteen sixty-three. Jack and Joyce take Harry to okay. the local psychologist, Doctor Thomas Gribb.
0: Who's and he and he said in his notes, "Quote: We may be dealing with a schizoid personality." Yes. Unquote.
1: And and the reasons they took him were, were Harry's moodiness his budding issues with the law, and the note found in his room that said he planned to run away from home and planned to take guns and ammunition with him. As you alluded to, Dr. Gribb's opinion was that he suffered from a personality disturbance but was not psychotic. That's important. Gribb would schedule a psych- psychological test for February 20th, saying we may be dealing with a schizoid personality. Obviously, this scheduled appointment did not happen as the murders happened two days before.
0: Now, the investigation into the homicides didn't really last too long. As the police were searching the home when they were there, after they find the bodies, uh, inside the pocket of a pair of Harry's pants, it was clearly a pair of pants that he was trying to hide. They were, like, thrown in an attic or something. It wasn't, like, in his room. They found a note which mentioned the name Norbert Hansen and Pulaski. Now, Hansen was a friend of Harry's, 19 years old, so he's an adult friend of Harry's. There's also indications that they were cousins, and I think this would be like from one of Jack's other wives, not on Jack's side, because his family's not up. here, right. um, and not from Joyce's side, but I think they were cousins through one of Jack's other two wives. Um, and I don't know if that's even ever been proven that they were cousins, but they're, you know the police thought that there were indications that they were actually family members of some sort. But in any event, police find Hansen at Carver Boatworks in Pulaski, where he worked. So they go see Hanson, because he's on a note in Harry's pants talking about Norbert Hanson and Pulaski. So they go see Mr. Norbert Hanson here, and they go to Carver Boatworks to talk to him. And at first, Hanson denies knowing anything. He didn't deny knowing Harry. That was clear that he knew Harry. But he denied knowing anything about where he was or anything that's happened or anything like that. But basically, when the police said, well, there's five dead bodies here, and unless you want to be a, an accomplice, uh, you're going to tell us what you know about Harry. And so then, then Hanson basically spills the goods on what he knew. So Hanson tells the police that Harry told Norbert of his ideas of running away about a month prior. And he asked Norbert to help him. So that coincides with what Harry's parents believed, too. Remember, Jack and Joyce believed that he was, he was going to run away. They took him to a psychologist about that. And now we have Norbert also saying that Jack had told him that he was going to run away and he wanted Norbert uh, to help him. So earlier that Monday, the day of the murders, Harry calls Norbert and asks him to pick him up at a street corner near his house at about 545, which Hanson did. Now Hanson believed that this was Harry putting his plan into action of running away because they had talked about this previously. So he didn't really think it was all that odd that Harry was asking him to pick him up on a street corner and be, you know, kind of discreet about it. So Hanson stated that Harry said that he didn't get along with his stepmother and that that seemed to be the catalyst for him running away. So again, no mention there about him not getting along with Jack. Jack, Now, no mention of him not getting along with John. Here it's the stepmother. So we have all these different stories.
1: Right. right? It just goes to show nobody knows for sure.
0: Now, Hanson lived in Pulaski, and he knew of an old farmhouse where Harry could spend the night while he's, uh, you know, what Norbert thought that he's he's hiding from his family.
1: It was one of his buddies who lived there, the Pienta Farm in Pulaski.
0: The Pienta Farm. It's an old dilapidated farm in Ocano County.
1: You've probably been there.
0: I've never been to this one. Okay. I would, I I don't think it's standing anymore, but I would kind of like to see oh, it. With research from your last book, I would have thought maybe. No, I don't. I'm not. I'm not familiar with it.
1: That book is Finding Dairyland. For the record, thank you for the plug, man. You're welcome. Real subtle, huh?
0: So now John Pianta was kind of a, uh, I guess he's a simple man. You know, he had a son about the age of of Hanson, and they knew each other, like you said. And Hanson himself had stayed there a few times, and and I guess it was kind of known that, that their buddies would stay there every once in a while, and, and John, the man of the house, didn't, didn't really seem to ask a lot of questions. So this is where Harry was staying. Harry was hiding out at the Pienta Farm in Pulaski while Hanson thought that he was waiting to, uh, to skip town Cause he because was he was running, running away. away. And that right? was
1: all according to Hanson.
0: So when police learned about where he was, they devised this plan to go with Hanson to the farmhouse. And they kind of tricked Harry into thinking that it was just Hanson by himself. They're in Hanson's car.
1: They got permission from the office to visit the farmhouse, obviously. Richard Trickle, Brown County Sheriff's Department Chief Investigator. Wendy Magnitson, Sheriff's Department Officer. Ed Pasowitz, the Pulaski Police Chief, who they also needed because they were out of their jurisdiction. So they needed someone from that police department. That's why they rounded him up. And then they got Norbert and they went to this farmhouse. And as Scott said... Shrickle was, was lying in the back, and when Harry came out, didn't notice there was anything suspicious, got in the car. with, And by the way, Magnuson and Paskowitz were, were in a backup car down the road just in case something went haywire. Uh, Shrickel was in the back of the car. When Harry got in, he grabbed him around the neck with his arm and placed him under arrest. It, this was on Tuesday, February 19th, the day after the murders, and Harry didn't say anything or resist at all. So he knew his time was up.
0: So now they found, they found a few lists that basically implicated Harry in these murders. And this is why the investigation didn't take very long. So these lists that Harry, Harry basically was was planning this for weeks. And he wrote out lists, checklists basically of how he was going to, how this was going to go down. And one they found in his locker at Green Bay West High School in his English textbook. And in verbatim, the list said, one, automatic 22 rifle and load it. Two, have feet wrapped in towels or rags. Three, hit dad and mom first, then as they come. Four, take all money and hide it in closed off chamber. Five, check everybody and make sure. Meaning make sure they're dead. Check their pulse. Six, get cleaned up and get into pajamas. Seven, get rid of towels or rags. Eight, walk around in bare feet to whole bodies. Doesn't...
1: Like to your point that he's not thinking straight because he'd already mentioned wrapping his feet in towels or rags, and now he's talking about walking around.
0: He's a little scattered.
1: Like, and and one doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, why do you want your feet and DNA and and you know prints and stuff at anywhere around the the massacred body? Because
0: well, and the the next two will tell you nine get shot in right arm and right leg. Ten. Call police or wait to get discovered. So at first he's he was gonna thinking he's, like g- he's going to make it sound like this was a robbery. Right. Somebody else came in, killed his parents, and shot him. And he'll, you know, lo and behold, he'll be the saint, the the sole survivor. And, yet, and there was another list that we mentioned before that was found in his pants pocket in the house. And this how this is it is much more specific. And obviously this I believe this one was written closer to the actual event because it's there's no thought here of shooting himself now it says one again verbatim one checklist two money three crap i think that just means random crap that he needs to right I th- obtain th- when i first read it here. i thought he meant well, i better go
1: to the bathroom because right. who knows what's gonna happen
0: four food five sleeping materials six clothes seven weapons ammunition eight cigarettes can't forget those no nine school locker you smoke after a good murder And ten, materials to take with Pulaski boys. Now, he gets more specific in this letter when he talks about how he's going to get away with this.
1: This list was actually entitled Getaway. That's what he called it. Okay, first one was have back seat of Norbert's car completely empty. When I pull all my stuff in it, won't get mixed up with anything else. This will make for quicker loading and unloading. The second point, disconnect the phone as soon as Norbert comes. Third, if possible, tell mom I'm going someplace so we'll have more time before realizing what's happening. Four, have having everything ready and waiting to be loaded. Five, lay up somewhere until I can take off from the farm. Six, go to Pulaski High School, question mark? Parentheses, if so, enroll by another name. So he's thinking of details, whether they're in order or delusional or not. Seven, if a changed name, have everyone call me by new name or at least a new nickname, not Butch. And eight have mail sent in care of Norbert. So he was thinking of these things, but it sounds a little scattered and sounds like this stuff isn't going to cover your
0: tracks. So, he, he, yeah, he, he's thinking of details. He's thinking he's going to wipe out his family and then he's just going to go enroll in another high school under another name.
1: Change his name. That's all
0: it takes. <laughs> Lucky Lucky O'Hara, right? I mean, yeah, just right. pick a different name and nobody's going to question who right, you are. Right. You're, you know, it doesn't matter that you're a minor. It's
1: a daredevil. You know how to do this crap.
0: You know, Problem-solving here was a bit of an issue for Harry. Which goes
1: to show that his logic and, and common sense weren't necessarily in place, which, to your point, there was some mental illness going on, obviously.
0: So now, what do we, less than 24 hours or so after the murders, Harry's sitting in a jail cell in Brown County. He didn't get very far.
1: He's got no family left, for the record. He's got nothing. Nobody. His mother's... Completely abandoned him and disregarded his life and he's killed everybody else that he's related to.
0: He also confesses to everything. He just starts talking, right? And he, he tells exactly how he did this. He says how he did it. He doesn't say why he did it. He has never said why he's done this. And
1: initially he did deny it, but he would break down later when finally admitting that he killed his father, who... In all reality, was the only one, even to this day, he shows any remorse for killing.
0: So he says that on that Monday, Monday, February 18th, he get, he does go to school in the morning, right? He starts it out like like a normal day. His drafting instructor, which is the last teacher to see him, states that he refused to do anything in class. Apparently more so than he usually does, because <laughs> yeah. these teachers say exactly he never did anything student. in class, right? Yeah. But it was no, enough— he's doing less— it was enough for the teacher to note that Harry was, quote, acting strange, so he talked to him about it.
1: Which, that's how many people would describe his actings in the first place, strange and quiet and and aloof and kind of kept to himself, so for them to notice something was different says a
0: lot. I'm assuming he's showing some pretty visible signs of anxiety here. Yeah, right,
1: right, right, nervous ticks and right. all that.
0: So his instructor does talk to him, but Harry indicates there's nothing wrong. He's fine. He does say, though, that he needs to leave because he has a guidance counselor appointment uh, in the afternoon, which turned out not to be true. There was no guidance counselor appointment. There was
1: no guidance, that's for sure.
0: So he goes home
1: early. He told his mom he was feeling ill, so she came to pick him up. I mean, Joyce, his stepmother.
0: So she comes, picks him up. He's home early. And now he has time to gather his 22 caliber handgun, his 22 caliber automatic rifle, and wait for all the others to come home. Joyce had to leave not too long later. She had a dental appointment and she was going grocery shopping. So he knew she was leaving the house, but she was coming back.
1: Keep in mind, this is a 16 year old boy who was doing all this. So
0: now he did, he did attempt to purchase a gun a few days prior. But he was rebuffed because he was too young. Uh, he also took his he, he also took out his dad's rifles the day before the murders, or two maybe two days before the murders, to go hunting. Right. So he's clearly sounds like practice. To me. Clearly making sure he knows how to use these. You're talking weapons. Talking about practice. So how did he do this? So he gets his weapons. For some reason, he goes out the back door, comes around the side of the house, and enters the front door. I don't know. Uh, what was actually going I didn't understand on there?
1: that. He, he, sa- yeah, he exited the back and came around to the front to, through the front. I don't understand what his thinking was either, but maybe it was the element of surprise or something.
0: So now Jack is the first one to be shot. He's, again, he's sleeping on the couch in the living room.
1: This is around 5.30 p.m.
0: And he, his thought that he was saying is that you need to take out, if there's any threat to him, you need to take that out first, as he said in his list. And this Take is the only
1: person he, he adored his father from all the accounts I've read. Even if he was abused by him, whether it's true or not, he always adored him. But he was the biggest threat in, so terms, in Harry's opinion.
0: He goes up to his dad who's sleeping on his back on the couch. He puts the gun to his forehead close enough that it left burn wounds on his forehead. Pulls the trigger twice and puts one in his chest. John who was upstairs at the time he shot him three times total. Uh John was upstairs when this was happening and he hears the gunshots, right? So he comes running what anybody would do. You hear what sounds like gunshots, you find out what the hell's going on. Either
1: run away or you run towards to find out. What's so going. he
0: comes running down the stairs and he sees Harry with guns. Tries to run back up the stairs, Harry shoots him. This does not kill him and actually it seems like a struggle might have ensued. A shot. Bit.
1: He was shot in the back and then a struggle did ensue.
0: And obviously, already being shot, Harry was able to overpower him, shot him three more times, the last being in the head as he was trying to, sounds like, get out the kitchen door. He then turns his attention to the 11-year-old twins, who were both in the kitchen at the time. One was coloring. She was coloring on the floor under the kitchen table. And Judith, the other one, was... Laying near the icebox.
1: and they were both laying on the ground.
0: Essentially, so they're just hanging out in the li- in the, in the kitchen. So he 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 shoots Judy twice in the head. That's which- how
1: quick this had to have happened for those girls to still be laying there, that they didn't. Well, they're, in
0: sh- sp- they're they're seeing this. I, they're just
1: laying there in shock, right. obviously. But yeah, I mean the, the picture that the painted when I read that one's coloring under the table and the other one's laying there near the icebox, and they didn't move those positions as they
0: witnessed this going on. It's just. To, to imagine being there would just be overwhelming, so he shoots Judy twice in the head, who's over by the ice box and then he runs out of bullets in the in the handgun so he I can't imagine this he shoots the the eleven year old girl dead twice, the other twice in the head the other eleven year old girl is still coloring on watching this right he puts the handgun down, leaves and goes and gets the rifle
1: I, that, that's what I don't understand that this other the other twin didn't panic and leave or she just must have been in such Uh, shock
0: she's paralyzed i guess and i mean she's paralyzed he comes back with the rifle and puts a bullet in her head as
1: morbid as it sounds there was blood around she could have been coloring with at that point because there had to be blood everywhere
0: i mean just imagine the last minute or two of her life her uh, whole family i mean so now again joyce isn't home yet she's one fatal shot to the head as you said that's all it took with her she went to the dentist, and then she stopped at the grocery store. So she comes home. Harry waits for her to come home. He, like, hides in the kitchen or something, right? Well, first
1: he returns to the living room to make sure Jack is dead. Right. Checks the pulse, as we alluded to earlier, that he was. He, he put that on his list that he needed to do. Grabbed, it, grabbed his wrist and
0: found no pulse.
1: Then he returns to the kitchen and waited for his stepmother, as Scott alluded to.
0: So she comes home. Obviously, she's unaware of anything that's going on. She comes home. She enters the house, and she walks into the kitchen. So he allows her he allows her to enter the house, walk into the kitchen, and see her dead children on the floor. She, he allowed that She to places
1: the grocery bags on the dryer and stepped into the kitchen. Upon seeing her dead son on the floor was immediately shot with one fatal bullet to the head.
0: According to the Green Bay Press Gazette, she died quote, she died with her mouth wide open in shocked surprise at the scene before
1: her fell to the floor with one fatal shot.
0: He could have took her out right when she walked in the door. He waited until she walked through and saw her kids dead in the kitchen and then took her out. That's her last thought. Yeah. Now, did you, did I don't know if you saw Mickey, did you see this would never be done today? So the press gazette, the day of the murders, the day of the murders, I don't know if this was a, a afternoon edition or if it was just later in the morning that they were able to get this out, but the crime scene is in the photo is in the paper. And the bodies are—I've never seen this. The the bodies are laying there. They have this in the in the paper. They're covered. They're covered in sheets. But the girls are laying on the kitchen floor with a with a sheet over them. There's blood all over the place. Jack is laying on on the couch, with a sheet over him. There's blood soaked all over the place. I mean, I have never seen newspaper photos like this before. That was published that day.
1: The articles I read didn't have those in kinds the of Green pictures, Bay. But that's Press, that is astonishing. Press that- Gazette. It, right, and I, I mean, that's a fairly popular paper on these parts, and I've have never before or since seen a picture like that. And in fact, I didn't see it in this case, but, yeah, that's crazy. Let that me let me show you these. Detail. Let me
0: show you these. Wow. So there are the, there's, that's, that's the groceries John. Groceries are on the dryer. Right. There are, like, blood drops over here. So wow.
1: One of them. That's how they did it back then. Yeah, because you would never see that these days.
0: There's the girl that was under the table coloring, coloring under the table there's just a pool of blood underneath her she's 11 years old dude right. and they run this in the paper i can't this would never be done new, today i don't think the last i don't th- know if this is good journalism or if this I, i'm not sure well or back if then it
1: was just more accepted we weren't i don't even know the right word but nowadays people would be up in arms to see that so yeah there's no in the last
0: 40 years you wouldn't see that anymore so now his whole family's dead harry goes upstairs and changes comes home he goes upstairs he changes he comes back down checks more pulses and basically puts finishing touches on two of them that he, I guess he did feel a pulse in two of them and he, and he put another bullet in each of their heads. So he put some clothes in, and toiletries in a bag. He buried the clothes that he was wearing in the snow. Um, and he
1: wrapped his, a, wrapped a gun in his clothes and walked a few blocks and then buried the, the bundle of clothes in the snow brilliant right because <laughs> the snow's never gonna melt Don't right. ever find that
0: right and his buddy came right on time 5 45 actually and he was supposed
1: up. to be there by 5 30 he was 15 minutes late but okay maybe he'd been sitting there and harry took longer than he should even though this whole it took less time for him to do it than it did for us to describe the scene that's how quickly this all happened even with mom not being there that's how quickly this happened and just massacre in 10-15 minutes
0: now, both Norb Hansen and John Pienta were exonerated for this. I mean, during the investigation, they realized neither one had anything to do with this. Hansen didn't know what was going on. They, he, he believed that he was helping Harry escape Run away. from a shitty family home. That's what he thought he was doing. So none of them, obviously, Pienta didn't know what was going on. He didn't know who Harry was when uh, Hansen brought him to his house about midnight, the night of the murders. And uh, neither one of those two were ever implicated in anything. Now, soon after the murders, the Rudell family and Jack were laid to rest. There was a funeral for all of them in Green Bay. It attracted quite a lot of people, classmates of the kids, the twins' brownie troop.
1: Five caskets were placed in a horseshoe shape in the funeral home.
0: Now, Harry, this blows my mind. Harry was offered the opportunity to attend that service. I,
1: I, I almost... Drop my phone when I Can read you that too. Imagine. I I, I can't. He, imi- why was the offer extended? He, yeah, right. I,
0: Fortunately, he, he declined. He declined because in the freaking I, hell.
1: What are people gonna do? I mean, what's he? What's he gonna do when he goes there? Because now that he's maybe back in his right mind, although we'll learn later, he was diagnosed as insane technically. But what are the people there who? Have some idea that he did it going to do to him when he shows up? I, I can't believe that invitation was extended to him. That's crazy.
0: I don't know who, whose decision that is. Right. I don't was, know why that came up to Hopefully be. they were fired like on the spot. That's, <laughs> That's just, just a bad decision. What an utterly stupid thing to do. Now, the family was taken and buried in knee
1: well, First, I'd like to say that, yeah, okay. that uh, the twins' classmates, especially like you said, they're, uh, the, the classmates in the Brownie troop, they, they created a huge memorial mural on the wall at their grade school. As a tribute to this to this family that died in this such horrific way, so there are still there's not a lot of evidence to this happening, ha- having been so long ago. But that mural still exists, from what I've been coming to understand.
0: According to Daniels, it's it he he mentions it as a, a a fading mural still exists. Few. I don't know what school it's in though, but I mean that's yeah sixty some years old now.
1: Right, and and there was a line of verses that transported the caskets 100 miles from Green Bay to the city of Moosonee where the burial plot was for the family.
0: Now, Mosinee is where is where Joyce's family lived. It's where they were from. She was actually born in Chicago. But, at, you know, sometime as, as a child, her family moved up to Mosinee. So she's buried in the cemetery in Mosinee with Jack. They have a joint headstone, and it says Together Forever on it. Now, this was done by her parents, right? She's not buried with the father of her children, who's buried in Warsaw. She's buried with Jack, And her parents put on her headstone, together forever. Does that sound like parents who was visited by their daughter a week before saying, I'm leaving this marriage, I have to get away from Jack? Does that Mm -hmm. sound like parents who knew that their daughter was being abused by Jack? Right. If it was a week before, they'd be very aware and it would be very
1: fresh in their minds. Of course.
0: They're buried right next to each other in the family plot in Mosinee with a headstone that says, together forever. I severely question the notion of abuse in regards to Jack on the rest of the family, in regards to the physicality of it. Jack has a history, I understand that. Jack was also known to do some pretty weird things himself. Voyeurism, peering in windows. There's shit going on there. That was what neighbors
1: that. would have said about him. But in as Again, far as I'm concerned,
0: these abuse rumors in regards to Jack on the family... In my opinion, completely unfounded. I'm not saying they're not true, but there's nothing there backing it up. Not even her not even Joyce's family apparently knew about this or believed it at all. Apparently she had bruises all over herself all the time. Right. Parents didn't know about that. They lived an hour away. Right. So he's he's Harry's charged as an adult.
1: The same day of the arrest he has to appear before the judge.
0: Right. They're getting this through. His list entitled Getaway didn't really I did
1: real well. It <laughs> wasn't subtle come enough. Come here.
0: fruition uh, there. Now, he's he's charged in a, as an adult on four counts of first-degree intentional homicide. They held one count in abeyance. I, I guess I don't know why they did that. That just means they held one count in back. In case they needed and it I later, guess, whatever wait, is that is he going to get off on these? Yeah, you, right. you can say, oh, if we're going to add this one. It doesn't matter in the long run when he went to trial five years later. But why not apply them all at I one have time? No idea. I idea. Why would you need that? it later? He was... When he went to trial, they charged him with all five murders. I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, and the lawyers have their tactics. Right. But it makes more sense to them than it does to us, obviously.
0: But, you know, in any event, he, he's now ordered to see two psychiatrists.
1: He's put before the judge that same day in the Brown County Courthouse. And he's he requests a court-appointed attorney immediately. That attorney, Robert Perrins, files a motion to have Hebert examined by two psychiatrists.
0: One of these was in Appleton. Uh, and the other, I believe, was in Sheboygan. So what those those findings were the following, quote, The offenses were committed in a rather cool and detached manner. Regarding the offenses, precipitating factors seemed to revolve around the fact that there were feelings of rejection and rivalry on Harry's part in the family, and these feelings culminated in the offense, unquote.
1: And Robert Perrins, the court-appointed lawyer himself, said, quote, He was very uncommunicative, very quiet. After a conversation or two, I was pretty well convinced that at that time he was in no shape to assist in his trial or defense. I'm not sure if he was fully aware of what he had done, unquote. That's telling from the lawyer who had a few conversations with him and already knew that he wasn't going to be able to contribute much.
0: So Harry was found mentally incompetent to stand trial on the counts of murder. He was ordered remanded to the Central State Hospital for the Insane in Waupon, for an indeterminate amount of time until he could assist in his own defense. Harry remained in custody of the state until 1968 when he was deemed fit for trial. And he did go to trial after five years. So he was deemed basically insane uh, for five years until he went to trial. Now, his attorney at the time, as Mickey said, Robert Perrins, interesting guy. We know him better as Judge Robert Perrins because he went on to become a judge. And he also went on to become the president of the Green Bay Packers. I didn't remember that, but I'm like, wow, that's a weird transition. Right? He was the the predecessor to Bob Harlan, right? You know, so. I just I was a little young at that point. He's also known for another reason, and this goes back to to something else that we've mentioned on the show a number of times, and this is about the Dahmer case. Mm. And if you remember, obviously, most people listening, I think know know the case of Jeffrey Dahmer and that we've talked about. Um, Jeff, we haven't covered the case yet, we will, but we've talked about Dahmer a number of times, and obviously the Netflix show is still fairly recent, and I think a lot of people have seen that. But if you remember the big dust-up of when when one of Dahmer's victims escaped, he was 14 years old, and a, a woman called the police, and the police were there on the street corner, and they were about to help this boy until Dahmer came out and said it was his boyfriend. And the cops actually wound up giving the kid back to Dahmer without doing any due diligence whatsoever.
1: You actually see that in the series. That's in the, right. right. It's,
0: it's, in, it's in the series. And they give him back to Dahmer and he winds up killing this kid like hours later. He was 14 years old. The police said he was an adult. He said he was 19. Dahmer said he was 19. The police never checked an ID, never asked for one, nothing. They gave this kid who was an Asian boy back to Dahmer, the white guy, right? Dahmer that, takes... That's him. important. Dahmer takes the kid back to his his apartment kills him so now there's this huge thing that happens with these two police officers and these two police officers were actually fired they're kicked off the force and this is a big de- this is a kind of a big deal in the in the the Netflix series right I
1: kind of remember it happening as it happened
0: too the I mean it's it's portrayed differently it's not right. portrayed that they were kicked off the, the force and right. there they were they were fired from the Milwaukee Police Department and they sued for their jobs back Judge Perrins is the one who reversed their termination. Judge Perrins is the one that said, Nope, you boys did nothing wrong. You not only get your jobs back, but you're getting $55,000 back in back pay. So this didn't sit well with a lot of people. Doesn't uh, sit that well with me for obvious reasons. So Judge Perrins.
1: And the Packers kind of sucked, by the way, in his whole reign. So this was in the 80s. There's a bunch of reasons to not like this asshole.
0: So after five years or so, uh, nineteen sixty-eight, he's finally found competent to stand trial. And on September ninth, nineteen sixty-eight, his trial for five intentional homicides begins. Remember, in, in in the beginning, he was he was charged with four, and they held one back in abeyance. This yeah. wasn't happening now. I don't know the story of that, but now they're he's being charged with all five. It must in have 1968. changed their
1: mind, as you alluded to, but. The, uh, and to note, the, this was the first trial in state history under the two-phase system, which means the jury first determines the innocence or guilt and then rules on the insanity issue of of the person on trial.
0: So it's a two-phase trial. The first is determine the guilt or innocence. Second is determine whether they're sane or not. It was the first time this was ever tried this way.
1: September 27, 1968, the jury rules that Hebert was sane at the time of the murders. Against numerous doctors' advice. right. And October 3rd, 1968, Judge Robert Gallmer of Baraboo sentences Hebert to concurrent terms of life imprisonment on each of the five charges. Incidentally, that same judge, Gallmer, was also the one who presided over the Ed Gein's legal proceedings. So that guy's got a history to talk about. It's just, it's, it's, it's Dahmer and Gein both right, being mentioned right.
0: in this. It's, it's, it's interesting to see the players in this trial. No kidding. You know, we're talking here in the 1960s and we have, you know, the judge from, uh, a world famous case in the 1950s and a lawyer from a a world famous case in the 1990s, both playing major know, roles, big roles in this. Right now, as Mickey said, the, he was sentenced to five life sentences, but they were concurrent. Concurrent. And Judge Galmer did this, which is fairly risky because that means he gets he could possibly get out on parole. Right. And Judge Gallmer said, "Quote: One life is all a man has." And as far as I'm concerned, one life is all he can be sentenced for.
1: That seems like, then why charge him of the other four at all?
0: Right. So if, now, conversely, if he's sentenced to five life life sentences consecutively, he ain't never seen anything. Right. He's in jail until he's 500 parole years Parole isn't right? going to get him out. Yeah. So, but because they're concurrent, he has been up for parole several times. He is still alive. He's still in prison. He's 70. What, six or seven years old?
1: And every request for parole ever since has been deferred
0: for the year. They just kick it to another panel. They just punch they, it to the next year. Until yeah. he gets to a panel that says, you know what? You're you're serving one of the longest sentences ever in the state of Wisconsin. What's he had 60 years or so now? You're elderly, you're harmless, You're you're a threat to nobody, we're going to let you out. Is that going to happen? And what it comes down to is the parole board continually compliments on him on his progress during
1: his incarceration. But as you're getting to, it always returns to the issue of the seriousness of the crimes and the conclusions against his release. It was just such a psychotic episode. You don't want that guy. What if he gets to that point again?
0: Right, right. He was capable the first time. My point is, and, and kind of in the climate that we're in, there is... Who's saying that you're not going to get to a panel one day that says, you know what, enough is enough. You're going to go live in this halfway house for the rest of your life somewhere. You know, could he not do damage to somebody again? He sure as hell could. So, again, that sentence of five life sentences concurrent makes no freaking sense. That is negligence. So as as we're
1: alluding to, he's currently residing in the Kettle Moraine Correctional Institution near Plymouth. The treatment worker in prison says he's been a very good prisoner. He's matriculated through all the levels of security, starting in maximum security, to the medium security with fences, and to minimum security, virtually no security at all. In nineteen ninety two, the Department of Corrections mandated all inmates with life sentences to be at a higher level of security and for this reason alone Harry was sent back to the higher than minimum security prison once again. It's reported that he even became such an ideal prisoner that he was reported to become an inmate driver, which is a position allowing him outside of the prison setting during working hours. So, in all accounts, he's become a upstanding citizen inside the prison walls. So, whether he's capable of doing this again or not, it doesn't it's, he's not having any incidents inside prison walls or anything, but again, he was capable of it one time. Who's to say that if they were to let him out and it re- re- realistically could happen, who's to say he wouldn't do it again? You just never know.
0: Just the notion that it can happen again because of a judge's egregious right. act. The fact that they allowed it to be a possibility. So he it basically it was thought that, you know, a court, I know what the jury said. Doctors, numerous doctors during his trial said he was insane right. when he committed this crime. And he was insane for five years afterwards until they said that he was competent to withstand trial. The jury, for obvious reasons, rebuffed that and said, no, dude, you're going to prison. You're right, Mick. What if, you know, the panel comes along and says, you're elderly, you've been in here long enough, go live in this halfway house. What if he goes uh, temporarily insane again?
1: If you can reach the level of insanity to do such an act against your own family, not even random strangers, which is... Not justified by any stretch of the imagination, but these are people you supposedly cared about or should care about or, you know, they're they're family, period. And you methodically killed them. You thought, thought about it for weeks, had lists and plans in place and escape plan and everything. And who's to say that he doesn't have a flashback to that even? Or gets set off by some new people in his life once he's outside the walls and, and just go haywire for 15 minutes again or a few weeks again. You know, If you're capable of it once, unfortunately, I do believe everybody deserves a second chance, a third chance, but maybe not in the case of, of a horrific five-person killing like this. Maybe, maybe he made his bed and he needs to lay in it for the rest of his existence.
0: I, and for people that say that, well, studies show that that doesn't happen, it's true. Right, but it it's only true. has to happen once. But he, he has advocators working on his behalf, believing that he's elderly, he's been in the prison system long enough, he deserves to be out. He's rehabilitated. Okay? Right. They say studies show that these people do not uh, re-offend. Harry was the first documented instance of a teenager wiping out his family in the state of Wisconsin. Ever. Ever. Now you hear about this now and again, Right. Harry didn't have any precedent to look onto in the state of Wisconsin when he was 16 years old. He didn't hear about this on the news. He didn't read about this anywhere. There weren't other school
1: killings and mass murderers going on so frequently. He didn't have the violent video games, the, the, the YouTube videos. He didn't have all these possible influences. I believe those are lame excuses, but he didn't have any of this stuff to start him off in this path. And so he kind of... Was a trailblazer when it comes to this
0: kind of horrific act. Well, yeah, and and as as Daniels does say in his book, and I give him credit for this, he didn't have anything to look to, when you know, as like a copycat committing this prime this crime, but he kind of wrote the book now on how to do it and and who these people are, the people that do it, because they fit him to a T.
1: Steve Daniels had a quote that I thought was pretty interesting and accurate. Quote: Harry's place is among the state's infamous. Harry could be considered a groundbreaker, a pioneer of sorts, on the wilderness trail of mass murder. In 1963, he drew the psychological map that the plethora of progeny mass killers follow to this day. Unquote.
0: You know, when you when you look at studies that are done by teenagers who commit mass murder today, they have these things in common. And this is by again by Stephen Daniels. They have a deep-seated anger. Harry obviously was rageful. Parents are the main target. Usually, don't get along with siblings have some degree of mental illness have a high tendency towards sociopathy and he's he's said many times that although he does have remorse for for his father being done there's no remorse for the rest of those people and and quote there may be a precipitating event and if there is it's often exceptionally trivial after killing the family there is leaving of the area and unlike adult mass murders there is virtually no suicide among teens who kill, Harry never thought about taking himself out after this.
1: And what, And what, they also go into the point that adults who do kill their families, one researcher said a familicide, quote, it's not a means to an end, it is the end, unquote. And that's from the adult point of view, because in most cases, when the adult kills their family, they kill themselves because they just want it to be over for everyone. And when it comes to teenagers and, and, or adolescents that do these crimes... Most of the time, they have an escape plan because they aren't suicidal, which just boggles my mind because it seems suicide happens in that age more than any other. So the fact that these people that age are capable of killing their family and don't feel the need to turn the gun or the weapon on themselves, that just seems very contradictory to me when adults do tend to do it.
0: So there's there's thought to be three kinds of people that commit this, this crime, and they, they, they kind of fall into three different categories. One is they're severely abused. Two is that they're mentally ill, and three is that they're antisocial. And Daniels points out in his book, and I think he does a good job about this, that Harry doesn't really f- fit in squarely into any three of those categories. Daniel. hes It's a little bit of all of them.
1: Kind of a hybrid, because he was abused, whether we believe it was by his the most recent family or not. He, there was abuse in his past. So, yeah, he's kind of a hybrid of all three of those. So there are other cases... In this state alone, and to the point I just made, it's difficult to ascertain if Harry is the first actual teenage family killer in state history, but through most research it does indicate that quite possibly he is the first documented case. There are other cases, one that happened a few years later, the case of Douglas Dean in Cheboygan County, July 18, 1971, late at night, he got high on LSD, shot his mother, his girlfriend's mother, and the girlfriend's three small brothers with a rifle as they slept. sounds like he did this punishment as to his girlfriend for her transgressions, which possibly could have been cheating, and to kill his own mother, who he despised more than anyone. And in fact, this story actually received much national publicity, evidently, including an article in the Playboy magazine. Another case that could be compared to this was April 7, 1984, a a a kid known as S.R. Ranke in the village of Hamburg in Marathon County. A day after playing catch in the front yard with his family, S.R. went to his room removed the shotgun from his closet and the the case it was in, returned downstairs to the living room, and opened fire. He killed his father, his mother, his brother, and seriously wounded his younger sister, leaving her for dead. Due to the laws current at the time, he spent less than four years in the juvenile facility. As a result of this stupidity, in my opinion, he later, after re-entering the criminal justice system as a young adult, was asked by parole why he killed family, only response was, I decide when someone has to die, quote-unquote. And I, as I was getting to th- this case actually changed the laws in Wisconsin to allowing juveniles as young as 14 charged with murder to be waived into the adult court. And thank God it happened. It's too bad it didn't happen before that. One final case that happened in the state of Wisconsin, April 23, 1991, Bruce Brenzier near Balsam Lake in Polk County killed his father, his father's girlfriend, her two daughters, and her daughter they had together with a deer rifle. Then he called upon his stepbrother to help him dispose of the bodies, then placed them in a family station wagon, which was set on fire. And after that, Bruce then called and reported his family missing. Kind of along the lines of what Harry's plans were going to be, even though it didn't come to fruition. After all this, Bruce was institutionalized under unique sentencing structure. He spent the first three life sentences in a state hospital, and then finally he was transferred to the custody of the Department of
0: Corrections. So, now one of those said that you, that the only reason he gave is because he believed people die when I say they do. I decide when someone has to die. I am God. Yeah. Yeah.
1: At that age, I mean, as an adolescent, to be I decide when someone dies.
0: Wow. How do you,
1: how do you look at things that way at any age, much less at such a young age?
0: So the house today still exists uh, for the most part it's a little it's a little bit we haven't we haven't mentioned the address kind of for a couple of reasons one the address is out there if you guys want to find it go ahead we're not going to put it out there a couple things though uh, there's a lot of conflicting numbers out there which was for the, the house address, address itself, right, right for the different different publications are say different numbers and we also know that the addresses on that street have since changed the numbers have changed So you can look it up if you want. Be very wary that that address that you find is not relevant today. Now, the house also itself, again, still exists, but it's been remodeled so many times that as of today, it is believed that nothing of the original area of where these murders took place still exists. However, that hasn't always been the case.
1: In 1994 to 2003 there was one couple that moved in and the the husband's aunt who went to school with Harry researched it and showed articles to their to these new owners. The wife said she could feel where the mother had been shot and saw where the father had laid on the couch. Th- to that point the additions had been made but the portion where the massacre occurred was still intact. The wife would also go on to say that she felt the house was haunted and that some specter remained from the killings often left in the house alone while her husband worked at late at night she thought she would hear the radio playing and there was a search of the house and found no radio but there was a noise sounding like a low female ongoing murmuring sound that only occurred when she was home alone she said it wasn't frightening but a soothing and welcoming type of noise she would this was a daily occurrence she said would take talked to the spirit in a calm, reassuring terms. Every day this visitor would be there at that time until they finally got a dog and that stuff stopped happening. So whether this was actual paranormal activity or not, this woman believed it was, but there's no other evidence that there, this place was even haunted after this massacre
0: happened. Well, I don't have any doubt that if that area of the house exists, it's haunted as hell. Well, I'm sure.
1: Well, I don't either, and especially you were. No question you, about where, it. But is it residual, as you as you say, or it's funny that that was the only testament we had, and was just her. It wasn't even the husband that, that saw these incidences. So and, until they got a dog, right? Then and the, the dog, dog <laughs> right? Then the dog ended it. The dog must have chased the spirit away, because that often happens, right? It,
0: it's very reminiscent of the Amityville horror and how that all started, which which started with a familicide event. Ronald DeFeo came home one day at three fifteen, three thirty in the morning, whatever it was, grabbed a shotgun and took out his family. Both his parents and his four or five siblings. I don't know the exact number. He was older than Harry was. He was I think he Ronald DeFeo was twenty three. He was in his early twenties. Um and technically an adult. His his uh his reasons for that is that he was possessed. He said that a demon made him do it and then obviously subsequent people that owned the house um, said it was haunted, and then they wrote a book about it and it became this huge phenomenon. But, but Harry never even alluded to anything like that. No. So what made Harry do this? What you know, Harry today, again, has never told anybody, not any of his lawyers, not the judge, not the people in his life that he had that still supported him throughout his time, including Norbert Hansen, who visited him n- numerous times in prison and believes that he should be out and is advocating for him or was. He's never said why he did this. He never said, there was so much abuse on me, I had to get rid of it. He never said, I was so angry at the world, I had to get rid of these people. He never said, I hated my mother so much, I had to get rid of them. Why did he do this? But again,
1: I I believe that someone doesn't go this haywire unless there was significant abuse, molestation, possibly both, usually both, it seems. To cause someone to go this haywire, if there's any amount of support or just someone saying that he's not worthless and that there's a reason he's here, it sounds like he had none of that. And there was some abuse, whether it was from this final family that he took it out on, leads you to have to wonder because as Scott keeps alluding to, the evidence isn't necessarily there to, to back that up. But there was abuse in the past, his biological parents or his mother at least, which is an important factor in your life. Basically disregarded him. They wanted to get rid of him. Her her new husband abused him. This this kid was troubled anyway, and if there was mental illness on top of it, that that's a perfect equation. And with no support, with no even with his father taking him in, it doesn't sound like they were giving him a lot of attention and and patting his ego or anything like that. He might have not have been the worst father, the father that we might have painted today, but. There was something going on with him, not only mentally, but in his environment too. And that's usually the case, unfortunately.
0: Even the psychiatrists that were ordered by the court said nothing in their conclusion about abuse. It was, no, and it was,
1: they were adamant about him being psychologically ill,
0: mentally. No question about it. Adamant. They were saying he was insane. They didn't mention that he did this because he was abused. They didn't mention that he did this. Uh, because he was antisocial they mentioned that they think that he did this because he felt jealous that he was left out of the f- of he was jealous of his siblings for the most and part, he felt left siblings. out
1: of the family circle which a lot of times i i've known people who felt that way a lot of times that's just people bringing that on themselves that's
0: a normal part of adolescence right
1: and and, and people whether the family is welcoming, welcoming to them or not it's just, it's your perception. We all go through the cycles, but thank God most of us don't end up killing our families. Feed on these feelings long enough or severe enough, th- this does happen, unfortunately, which we tend to see in school shootings, too. In this case, he took it inward to his family, but with the school shootings, they often go out outward. With children doing it, it happens enough, unfortunately, as we've learned over the last 20, 30 years.
0: I think there's a lot of driving factors to why he did it. He had a shitty formative time of his life, you know, because as we said, between two and eight years old, when you're looking for attachment with your parents. Identity. And they, they push that away from you. I think there's a lot of rage there. He felt worthless as a human being in I, general. I also think he was very mentally ill. Right. And I think you see this by the kind of split personality that you see illustrated by his teachers, all of his teachers, not just one or two, all of his teachers are saying, He's this quiet, withdrawn kid, aloof. He didn't do well in school. The t- last teacher that saw him asked if there was something wrong with him because he was acting strange. There, there is. Stephen Daniels alludes to in his book that there is a crime scene photo of his dad on the couch after he's shot, and he's hanging out from the waist down, right? He's he, He's wearing clothes, but his penis is hanging out, okay?
1: And the one friend of theirs that we've mentioned a few times, Said he saw it once and it would avoid it while he was napping from then on. But when when asked about it himself, Harry would just say that's just how he slept. Now, that's speculation in both regards. There was one crime scene photo that supposedly
0: showed that. Just how he slept, right? Right. No. I don't believe that for a second. Not for a second. What's your theory? So we have a 30-something-year-old man here, 37-year-old man. Who's living in a house with two 11 year old girls who are not his daughters? And he comes home from work as he does every day and takes a nap on the couch in the living room where everybody can see him. And he whips out Major Goolsby. There's no way.
1: I wonder if he referred to it. As There's one. no
0: way. And the storyteller here, Mr. Carmen, says that he walked by or he walked by him sleeping uh, in, in, in the front room once in a chair. And it, was, and it was out, and he, he's, who, who does this? Who does this? Well, I, don't, I don't believe... A sexual predator would do that, but... There's no indication he's a sexual predator.
1: Well, well, I mean, th- th- there's people speculating, and that's, you know, that's why you could believe it if you wanted to believe all this other speculation, but like you said, that doesn't mean he was doing it just because this Carmen guy had ill will towards basically Harry and his father, his biological father. So a lot of these, as you called them, are stories coming from this guy's mouth
0: and you know it's funny in daniel's book he glosses over that and he says i don't know why the police didn't make a bigger issue of this that his penis is out because that could that's kind of an indication that he might have been abusing the twin daughters but he himself glossed over it right away right he brings it up and then he doesn't go any further there's no indication that he was that he was abusing that he was abusing these daughters in that way now I do believe that Harry. This is my opinion. I do believe that Harry was very mentally ill. I believe that Harry was delusional, and I believe that Harry thought his father was abusing those twins.
1: So he was being the protective older, older brother.
0: Think he was going through a god complex, not unlike that other perpetrator you just talked about. When I decide who should die. Or right. Not. Yeah. I think he thought his his dad was abusing those twin daughters. I believe Harry did this to him posthumously. It's a form of emasculation. Sure. There's also a quote saying he didn't get along with his brothers, but boy he did like those he twins. He did
1: like those twins, so he he might have been whether it was in a in a romantic way or a brotherly way, he was protective of them obviously and so this theory could be true
0: too. I think his god complex was I am saving these girls from my dad, and the reason that he has remorse from his for his father, cause he sent his dad to burn in hell. Right. He's but. very religious, heavy in the church. He was very active in church groups. He was remorseful for his father because of what his father did. So, well, I think that is he great. his God complex is that he was remorseful because he knows his dad is burning in hell right now, and he doesn't have remorse for the rest of that family because he saved them from the embarrassment, not only the torture that they were going through in his mind, but they're in a better place now. He calls himself Hawk today. You know that? He calls himself Hawk today because he's part Native American. He's, yeah. he's not. No. There's no Native American. So he's still he's a little bit delusional.
1: delusional. And, I, and I understand your theory, and I, I don't totally argue with it. It's just if he's protecting his, if nothing else, just the twin sisters, once he kills
0: his dad, why doesn't it stop there? Is he afraid they're going to turn him in? Oh, because then all the embarrassment goes on to that family. They live with that now.
1: Well, then why didn't he and kill if himself? He, and
0: if he, I like your
1: theory. It's as good as any other we've heard, including from Harry's mouth himself. It's just, that's, just, that's there, the part that troubles
0: me. There's, there's, there's no reason that he's given. If it's something as simple as, I was abused, say it. Right. If it's something as simple as, boy, I really hated my life, um, I, I was really downtrodden when I was little, and uh, I have a lot of rage. Say it. Talk he about says nothing. He talked like that. about the abuse
1: from his stepfather, but as you said, never from Jack.
0: So he's also protecting his father by saying, or by not saying, in my opinion, that he believes that he was molesting those kids because yeah. he's not putting his dad through that embarrassment.
1: Right. That was his. That was possibly. A, his mentality at the time but he's not going to throw his dad under the bus by admitting it out loud.
0: I just think if there's if there's a simple
1: reason for this. I don't think there's a simple reason. Say for it. This, right. Right. But I'm not sure as the court appointed attorney said I don't think Perry fully understood what had happened after he had done it. And now he's had all these years to sit and think about it. He's probably come up with 50 different theories as to why he did it himself. But to his credit maybe
0: He's never admitted any of them. But there's a reason he did it. you know, the, At the, the time. The whole a doctor saying he doesn't believe that he knows why he did it. Yeah, he did know why he did it. He knew it he, at the time. He planned this out for weeks. Well, my whole question is, how do we
1: prevent this going forward? Right.
0: You, you can't, Harry, obviously, he pulled the trigger. He took out children. He deserves the blame. But that doesn't mean everybody else in his life is absolved. I mean, if there, okay. there is a lesson here. Maybe the lesson is, how about not be a shitty parent? How about when you have a toddler in your home, you take care of them, and you show them love and affection, and that they are cared for?
1: I mean, obviously, the mother resented him and held him in disdain, but then then don't just allow the abuse to happen. But then again, if you're capable of hating your own biological child, maybe you're not capable of those thoughts, unfortunately.
0: She's a, she's a sociopath. Right? She's mentally and ill. And
1: maybe that goes... Down to generations.
0: No doubt about it. Both of us believe that Harry um, mentally Ill. is mentally ill. There's no question about it. But parenting has a direct effect of who your your children become. And when, when, when you're you're treating them in their formative years like they're trash, they're going to treat other people like that too. They're, they're not going to have remorse. You didn't show them any. They're not going to have love. You didn't show them any. I mean, we look at the, the, the society that we're in today. This, in 1963, this was unheard of, right? right? That's why it was almost international news.
1: But since the 90s, this has come
0: so common that we've almost become desensitized to There's it. a mass shooting almost every day in this country. And obviously, not all of the blame, but part of the blame goes to parenting for that. There's a lot of reasons these things are going on. We have an, uh, an, an epidemic in this country of... People having children that don't care for them. People having children that don't care about themselves.
1: Or they just don't know how to do it.
0: They don't know how to do it or they don't want to do it. Right. And
1: unfortunately, a lot of it has to do with people not accepting any responsibility for their own lives and their own actions. And again, if you bring a child into this world, it's your responsibility. And if you don't think you can handle it, then you should find a way to provide a better situation for that child. Because that child did not choose to come into this world. You made a decision that caused that child to come into this world. So that's your responsibility. And people need to start accepting responsibility more for their actions, for their children. And maybe this shit will stop happening. Amen,
0: brother.